We are aware of the three incidents of feces throwing over the past few days at U of T and York University. What has happened is shocking, and we are providing assistance to those affected. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Inbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslicht. How are you doing today, Mickey? I'm doing pretty well. I, uh, I'm really excited about today because uh, it's uh, a former student of mine, Nick Hobson, who's joining us. And uh, just you know, in the few minutes uh, that we've been chit-chatting, as we've been setting up here, I just remembered how much I like him. Um, and I can tell our, we're going to have a fun conversation. Nick is a very engaging guy, so uh, I'm looking forward to it. And what about you, Yoel? How are you... Uh, I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing well. I had a, a sort of a run in with a with a homeless person um, earlier, where uh, he was trying to fight me. Uh, apropos of our last chat, actually, on the, the last episode of the podcast, but I resisted. I I did not fight him. I decided I was better than that. Wait, wait. Why did you get into an altercation with a homeless man? So so. <laughs> Well, that sounds bad when you put it that way. So the situation was uh, we were at uh, the pub, you know, after our speaker series um, and I was with a group of people. Uh, they happened to all be women. We were like walking out of the thing and this guy comes up and sort of starts aggressively asking for change. And I tell him, no, sorry, we don't have any. And he keeps insisting. And I don't know. It was just a situation where I felt uncomfortable. He was like up in our business kind of. And like, I guess I do have a little bit of like benevolent sexism or something. And then I was a little more aggressive with him. And I was like, you need to leave us alone. And he did not respond well to that. And it was like, you want to fight me? Fuck you. You know, like, and like shoved me actually. Um, but Whoa. yeah. So I, I like called the cops, but you know, he sort of wandered off eventually and they were like, yeah, well, maybe we'll fight him and tell him not to do it again. <laughs> <laughs> that, the, the strangest part of that story is you called the cops. <laughs> Well, you know, I felt like maybe he wasn't going to like go away because for a while he was just sort of like hanging around or I actually walked a little bit of a distance from everybody else and he sort of followed me. And I was like, is this guy going to leave me alone? Like, you know, so maybe also if somebody's like aggressively panhandling to the point where they're like flipping out on passersby, I feel like that is somebody who maybe should be like taken off the streets and like let him cool off for a night or something. I, I don't I honestly have no idea what they do. Do they put you on a cycle? Do they just like throw you in the tank? Like what happens in Canada? Uh I'm not even sure what that means, being thrown in the tank. I think that's a TV tank. show. You yes. get thrown in the drunk tank. Does that, is that a, that's not a thing. Uh, I, it, a law and order or LA law back in the 80s. Yes, that was a thing, I think. But maybe it's a thing, I, but I never really had that many altercations with the law, interactions with the law. So I've never been in the tank. You've never spent the night in the tank. That's your story. Yeah, I've never spent the night in the tank. I see. Uh, yeah. Well, so so it's a mystery. We have no idea what what ended up happening. But uh, that was that was my evening. So a little bit of excitement. Yeah, that sounds a bit tonight. scary. I mean, I, I would definitely be scared in that situation. You know, it wasn't like he didn't have a weapon. He didn't seem like super formidable. Like he was about my height and weight, I would say. But he'd also like obviously like kind of had a rough life. And I was like, if it comes down to it, if the guy like really comes after me, like it wouldn't be pleasant, certainly. But like, I doubt that he's going to like just fucking knife me 
right? So it was more just like, uh, how do I now extricate myself from this like socially unpleasant thing where this guy's like following me around and, you know, yelling shit at me and everybody's like, whoa, who's that dude who's like fucking picking a fight with a homeless guy? <laughs> you know, not a great look. So anyway, that's uh, that was my main concern was like looking foolish. Right. Well, uh, I'm sorry, you know, you went through that. And uh, if I was there with you, we would have been a formidable team. We would have been, you know, <laughs> we could do that thing where, you know, the one person and sneaks up behind the person and the other person then like shoves him and he falls over. You know, right. I, th I, I think your your combined height and weight is six foot five, two hundred pounds, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, together we're a formidable opponent. But you know what? I, I feel we want to get Nick in here and actually give a proper intro because uh Yeah, sorry, the first thing I said was like chirping you guys. I know it's good. We we like the chirping. <laughs> so okay, so as I mentioned, uh Nick or Nicholas Hobson uh is a former graduate student of mine at the University of Toronto, got his PhD in social psychology and um, lots of training in neuroscience as well. Uh, he also worked uh, with Will Cunningham and Jeff McDonald at uh, the University of Toronto. Now, since graduating, uh, Nick has stayed in the um, you know southern Ontario area. He lives in Hamilton, Ontario, the Hammer. Um, and he's had a kind of interesting uh, journey uh, since graduating. So he worked uh, as a consultant for this massive uh, giant of a consulting firm, KPMG, worked for them briefly. Um, he, a lecturer uh, at the University of Toronto and the University of, University of Guelph. Um, but since then, he's really kind of become a, uh, he's an entrepreneur and started a website called The Behaviorist, and he specializes in business consulting. Um, and uh, some of the things he consults on uh, are personality assessment, leadership development, um, experimental design, and nudging. So getting, you know, businesses uh, in on the uh, behavioral science game. Um, uh, Nick also writes quite a bit uh, for the public, for you know the general public, uh, in places like Forbes, NPR, uh, Vice, and more. Um, and I, I discovered as I was doing a bit of research on you, Nick, you produced this delightful series of videos uh, called "New Ideas, Old Brain." That's right. Um, each containing what seems like you know nuggets of psychology and neuroscience. So there's uh, like. What, 20 of them or 15 of them. Yeah, yeah, but 20, 20, 30 on, and 20 on the site. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. wow. So it's, uh, yeah, it's qu qu quite, uh, there's quite a lot already. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, Nick launches his own podcast called It's All Just a Bunch of BS. And BS in this case stands for uh, behavioral science. Um, it'll soon be, uh, uh, you know, drawing way more listeners than us. So. Welcome to the show, Nick. It's a pleasure to uh, to see you again and have you on the show. Yes, thanks, guys, for having me. I'm super excited. And when I decided to launch and do my own podcast series, I think I drew some inspiration from from you guys. Um, you should not do that. Yeah. <laughs> don't do, you yeah. do the opposite. I actually. So what what most people don't know is I, I launched a second podcast, which is still in the uh, in the uh, develop R and D stage with a with a good friend of mine. And this is really where I drew inspiration from you. And we call it. Um, Hot toddies, hot topics, where we drink a few hot toddies while we record our uh, while we record our episode. But it's just it's it's uh, subpar. But we do it we do it because we're good friends who live in Hamilton. You guys come up like you guys come up in conversations with with people I know, like sort of in the academic circle, who, who non U of University of Toronto folks who who've heard and listened. So you have you have a base out there. You have an we've, we've, we've already invited you on, Nick. You don't have to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to kiss our ass. <laughs> <laughs> but it is, it is it is great to be here. It's good to see you guys again. Yeah, well, uh, we're really excited to have you on. Um, what uh, what are we drinking? 
Well, okay, so there's a bit of a backstory here. I, I stopped and I already walked um, off off air. I walked Mickey through this, but um, nine beers that I bought, each of them sort of represents a stage in in my life. From first when I was a, a cheap and and uh, uh, unworthy undergraduate student, and I had to buy cheap beer, so that's the Lowenbrow, uh, which is somewhere in the freezer cooling down. And then it sort of tracks through the the progress of my life through grad school, and then meeting my wife, getting married, moving to Hamilton. So the the beer that Mickey has is a collective arch, which is you know the the, the darling of the hammer, of course. Yeah, they're they're one of my favorites. I really really like their beer. I've got a uh, I think it's a limited edition, blackberry cherry lemon and vanilla sour. Uh, and as I was saying to to Mickey again off air, but I think this is great is. Um, Collective Arts is not far from where I live in Hamilton, right in the, and I, I first I said right in the heart of the industrial zone, and I changed it to right in the anus, because that's how, uh, that's how <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's bad. Things aren't great there, but they do have Collective Arts, which is which is a really good, uh, a really good brew with some good beer. So you're, you're drinking that, and then Yoel, I can't remember what... You know that's not even I cheated because that's not even part of my story of the of the beers that I got. That's just sounded neat and cool. So can you read it out? Yeah. So this is uh, Sun Bear Blonde Ale with tea and honey, and this is from Silly Sir Brewing Company in Toronto, Ontario. So yeah, it's uh, it's very on brand for me the the tea part, and it's quite tasty. I you can sort of taste the black tea, and it's a little bit sweet from the honey. It's really nice. Are you a tea guy? Well, sometimes I don't drink beer. Sometimes I drink tea instead. On this show? Oh yeah. <laughs> that's He's blasphemy. shocked face for for yeah, those for of you at home. <laughs> you well, you you well break script all the time. Oh, he doesn't abide by our rules. He has no rules. Well, I'm glad I could uh, sort of meet you in the middle there with that beer tea. I appreciate it. Yeah, Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. And, then, and then I got uh, what's called Woodhouse Brewing uh, Co. Lager beer. It I, I I I I hate to admit this, but I'm not your sort of micro brew kind of guy. I am. Uh, I like a pilsner. I like a lager, like your your traditional German Bavarian style lager is sort of what I go to, and this is a nice complement to that. Um, and this reminds me of where my wife and I would go in Toronto and Leslieville because they served it on 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 tap there. So I got this one selfishly for myself. All right. Well, thanks so much for bringing the beer, uh, Nick, and uh, great to have you on. And cheers. 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 It's also so great to have a, a, a actual guest, a live guest, because some of our guests are uh, oh, yeah. on Skype, so live is uh, a little more fun. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, can we now do microdosing? Uh, so you actually introduced it as a possible thing to talk about. So, I mean, what is microdosing? Uh, yeah, what is it? So microdosing, as far as I understand it, I, I, I have a, a casual uh, interest I haven't tried it, but I, I've been following the, the, the research on, on psychedelics. Um, but microdosing is where you take a compound, a typical psychedelic like psilocybin, magic mushrooms, uh, LSD, typically are the two. And you take anywhere between a 20th and a 10th of the typical dose. So let's say the, the usual nor normal dose where you trip with LSD is 200 to 200 micro micrograms. Uh, a microdose is about 10 milligrams. So it's it's much less and it's you don't there's no you know hallucinogenic effects. It's sub what they say subperceptual. So there's no changes in cognition or perception, sensory perception. But there are these salutary benefits, there are these outcomes where you feel you just feel good. You feel better, you feel less anxious. Um, some people report you feel more focused, you can perform better in whatever task you're doing. 
and now of course there's there's some people are suggesting you can um you can help the, the symptoms of of intractable depression and, and anxiety as well sign me up man that sounds like <laughs> lots of fun seriously and and so what they what they're doing now sorry y'all is uh silicon valley of course these these tech nerds are just jumping all over this shit um, and they see it as sort of a performance-enhancing thing for their work, so they can sit at their desk and code for 16 hours on end. And it's not if you go to Silicon Valley in those those circles, everyone microdoses. Wow. Yeah, yeah, it's a thing. So, Mickey, are you going to recommend this to your graduate students? I think uh, no, I would never do that. Uh, this is a personal choice, but uh, actually, you know, it's I, I've also become interested in the topic. Uh, you know, I, I, I have macrodosed, uh, never microdosed. Um, but, I, I, you know, there's actually some people here in the University of Toronto who, who are interested in, in studying this, uh, the medical school and also right in the psych, psych department. So um, there was a new uh, psychedelic studies research program at the University of Toronto in Mississauga, uh, headed up by Norm Farb and Thomas Anderson. And they've conducted some of the first uh, kind of descriptive uh, qualitative studies of uh, microdosers out there because we just we actually don't know that much uh, about the practice, uh, who's doing it, are they different than people who aren't doing it? Um, and I don't have time to really get into all the details of the studies. And they've got I think uh, got a couple published already and 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 one uh, in in press uh, or on a sorry on a preprint server. Um, and there's a couple of interesting things. So uh, so I've learned that for example, uh, microdosers will take the dose, the microdose, one day, and then abstain for two days, typically. That's the kind of modal uh, way of doing it. Uh, yeah, which seems, yeah, I wouldn't have known that. Um, compared to controls, they actually had, a, they, they were significantly less likely to report a history of substance use disorders, which, again, would kind of at least kind of pushes against my, uh, my priors, um, and have a, uh, again, less likely to have had a history of anxiety disorders as well. Um, so again, kind of goes against against some of some of my intuitions uh, in terms of what people report. Again, compared to kind of matched controls, people uh, and the controls in, in in this case are people who were found on this same Reddit, you know, subreddit page uh, for 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 microdosers, and uh, but they hadn't done it yet, but might have been interested. And compared to these people, um, they uh, the microdosers report improved mood, uh, improved focus. Um, but they also report some uh, some negative effects, so um, physiological discomfort, um, and sometimes uh, even though they have improved mood, they have uh, uh, increased anxiety as well, uh, which I can imagine. Uh, I've heard if you because of course you can't, it's, it's illegal. It's although it's a, a much it's a fraction of a, of a full dose of say psilocybin or LSD. It's still illegal. And so you never know exactly what you're getting. You might be told it's 10 micrograms, but you really don't know. So I've, I've heard that if you do a little bit more than sort of the ideal micro dose, you can feel um, a, like a buzz of anxiety as if you've had too much coffee to drink is what I've heard the experience as. Right. Uh, yeah, because I mean, again, I've, I've had some experience macro dosing, just regular dosing, I should say, uh, not macro dosing. Um, and yeah, there's definitely an, an anxiety element with, uh, with psilocybin, um, especially at first. Um, so I can see that even the micro dose, that kind of popping in there. Um, uh, so the other thing, uh, you know, from a study, a recent study in psychopharmacology, again, by Thomas Anderson and colleagues, um, they found that microdosers uh, scored lower on measures of dysfunctional attitude, uh, negative emotionality, 
and higher on wisdom uh, and open-mindedness. Um, so now let's uh, let's remember this is all self-report. Yeah. This is all people who know they're being asked uh, about their state because they're microdosers. So there's a lot of lot of demand in here. Mm-hmm. But these are some of the first first studies out there. So it's just kind of cool to like kind of get a, get a lay of the land at least for now. Yeah, and I th- I think the the literature on microdosing will follow suit of what we're seeing with you know psychedelics research generally. Um, all right. Well, cool. Uh, it's fun to kind of think about microdosing and, and maybe we'll do a, a full episode on psychedelics. That sounds like a fun topic, doesn't it, Yoel? Yeah, I would be into that. And, uh, you know, if any listeners have experience with this, uh, have tried it personally, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah. Yeah. Let us know. So, uh, well, let's start talking about you, Nick, because uh, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're our main topic, not microdosing. Um, so, Yoel, you want to uh, you want to you want to start? Yeah. So part of the reason that we're excited to have you on is that you followed a track that I feel is is more and more common for behavioral science PhDs. That is, uh, you went to industry uh, uh, instead of staying in academia. So that's uh, a big part of what we would like to talk to you about today. And one thing I'm curious about is, you know, what, how did that path look for you? So when you started uh, the PhD, did you have something in mind that you wanted to do with your degree? Were you thinking about five years down the road, what am I going to do? Did it not cross your mind at all? Were you thinking academia? Like, how did that look for you? Yeah. So it's a great question. Um, Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) I wrote it down beforehand. So, (laughs) so um, when I, when I started, you know, graduate school, master's PhD, I, I had a clear vision of my future self, which is I wanted to be you guys. I wanted to do the typical research tenure professor. And I had that goal in mind versus there's, I know there's some graduate students who, who go and be like, oh, I don't know what I want to do, so I'm just going to keep doing my education. That wasn't me. I, I had a clear a clear focus and a clear goal in mind. Um, and I'd say about, you know, two years in with some of, you know, my lab mates and your former students, Mickey, like Alexa, uh, Jenny, Rima, and Shauna, sort of wave 1.0 in the Inslick lab. I, I, I saw where they were going and I, their, you know, journeys and trials and tribulations going on to, on the, the academic job market. And um, and so I had to ask myself some tough questions because I had my now wife, who is my, my girlfriend and fiance at the time. Uh, she was and is a, a high school teacher. So she was established in her in her getting becoming established in her career. And um I knew that if I wanted to stay within academia, it was likely that I would have to postdoc at some other, you know, institute. And and to increase the chances of coming back to Canada, it's better that you go postdoc in the U.S. at a big school, you know, big Ivy League school. And then you come back and your CV looks that much, much better. Uh, So I knew that I would have to move and I'd have to uproot my family. So I, for years, I put it off and I just like, oh, it'll figure itself out. And then I was like, OK, we got to have this conversation. And so I had, you know, talked to talk to my wife and and I, we came to the conclusion that I wasn't that we weren't prepared to move outside of the Toronto region. So then I was like, OK, maybe I can go to on the job market with, you know, what are the schools, eight schools in this area. And then I quickly did the math and realized that it was not in my favor. So I, I abandoned that dream. And, and to be honest, like for a lot of students in academia and grad school at University of Toronto, which is a great program, a great school, I was in a great lab. I had good publications. I had to get decent CV. I now had to wrestle with this idea of um, redesigning that future self that I had in mind. Uh, and th- there was a lot of anxiety there for that. Like at that, uh, I could have I could have used some microdosing at that time for sure. <laughs> 
And uh, but but eventually, you know, you, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And and I started talking to some folks at Rotman, which is the business school at the University of Toronto. And they were like, have you heard of consulting? And I hadn't because all I thought was academia. That was it. Right. And then uh, so I just started to do homework on consulting and, and some firms showed interest. I uh, interviewed at some of the big name ones, BCG, McKinsey, KPMG. And then I ended up after defending. Uh, ended up going to KPMG because they were uh, really interested in behavioral economics. And this was 20, what is this? This is about 2015. So this is right in the, the sort of the, the peak rise of, uh, of applied behavioral science and behavioral economics in organizations, certainly in policy. And so the big firms are at that time were recognizing that they needed to create teams, that they needed to bring in talent of PhDs in psychology and behavioral science. And they told me I was hire number one. I was their first PhD. And I was like, boom, this is it. I get to do the consulting. I get to sort of still do science or at least use some of the skill sets that I'd learned in graduate school. I could sort of be a scientist. Um, and so that was my first that was my first step outside of traditional academia and into uh, what we what we call I realize in academia what we call industry, you say that and people are like what the f industry? <laughs> it's like it's like what what the grad students do who don't stay within academia's industry. So yeah, that was my first step, and then I've, the journey continues. But I'll, I'll shut up there if uh, if we want to go another direction or no no no. I think uh, this is all great. Um, if you don't mind, I I, I would like to hear because I mean I think what what you're describing is. Um, a situation where, uh, in many ways, you had like a, a lot of the, the the kind of the the cards in your deck. I mean, you had like again good publications, uh, supposedly good lab, good university, and you had possibilities. People were interested in in, in kind of having you out uh, doing a postdoc, for example. Um, I think even at one point you were, you were considering going going to Harvard for a postdoc, um, and. Uh, but then you, you kind of change your mind or you realize for family reasons, uh, you know, it wasn't going to work. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about that, you know, what that felt like, the kind of the internal turmoil, of, you know, without going, you know, without, I don't want you to get weepy on me here. Um, it's triggering. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, my I, trigger warning? Yeah. Uh, just to hear, you know, because I think that's a struggle that a lot of yeah, people yeah. go through and, and maybe by hearing about it, uh, people will, yeah. 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 You know, I'm, I'm actually glad you asked that. Um it was it was totally difficult, and it was it was really difficult at the time because I had, and this is before grad school. There was there was five years of undergrad, two years in between graduate school and undergrad, undergrad and grad school, where again I was constructing this future version of myself, which was a tenure, you know, research tenure professor, asking and answering interesting questions and having a lab and doing all these things. Um, so it was like it was almost. Like if I could liken it to a quarter life crisis, because I had to reinvent myself and, and who I saw myself as, as you know, at that person. Um, so, yeah, definitely difficult. But why I'm glad you asked that question is because at the time there was almost this like helplessness that it's like, oh, woe is me. What do I have to offer? What else can I do? Oh, my God. Like nothing. There's no opportunities. And that's absolute bullshit. What I've learned in the last three, four years, five years since sort of having, you know, wrestling with that decision is a PhD student in a good lab with smart people at a good institution, any PhD student for that matter, and in, in, let's limit it to psychology and behavioral science or neuroscience. You're fucking smart. You're smart. You're motivated. And there's opportunities out there. 
Um, so that's one is that if there's any of your listeners who are sort of in this, you know, at this period uh, where they're considering alternatives and they feel bad or they feel less than because they're leaving academia, don't. Because you 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 will realize once you go out, the, once you leave the walls of of that institution, that you're you're super intelligent and competent, um, and you have to realize when you're in that program, your your comparison, you're comparing yourself to some really smart people, your mentors, your lab mates, your senior you know, people in the program at a place like, you know, University of Toronto or Harvard or any of these big name schools, those are, those are like, that's the top 1% of people. Um, so when you go out and you leave, you say, wow, I actually have a lot to offer. And so that's what I, that's what I sort of realized over, over the years. And, but it wasn't overnight. It was, it was actually, it's this, I'd say it's only in the last year that I've started to sort of Put, put those pieces together and and feel much better you know about myself and what now I can go to the marketplace and industry and offer my clients and they go wow that's amazing you know ritual like you know because that's what what I studied um which is a part of a big part of my offerings now to clients and they go that is fascinating like how do you, you know all this stuff where before I'd be like I know nothing I'm just like this little graduate student who can't code in R and do statistics <laughs> You know, as you know, because it's you and you're my a former student, I, I feel a little bit guilty. I, I'm not going to lie, um, for not um, maybe knowing more about you know opportunities outside of academia, and also maybe I don't think I hope I didn't discourage you, but I probably didn't encourage you either uh, to pursue outside of uh, outside of academia. Yeah, but that's no that's no fault of yours, and that's no fault of the institution or the academy. That's what that's your training, that's your experience, that's your guys' background. You guys never did a, a stint in in consulting, or I don't think you did at least, anyways, or or like you know market research firm or or any of these applied settings. So, you you know you can't be blamed for for encouraging because you you don't know you don't you don't know and i think we now see programs are changing where you have you still ha will have the u of t's you'll still have the harvards where it's you know the, the basic research programs that are training you know researchers they're, they're training the graduate student to become researchers and to stay within academia really right but alongside that, we see a growing number of applied programs that are sometimes PhD, most of them are masters, and in the UK in particular, there's a lot of them where they're training behavioral scientists and what they're now calling behavioral designers to, um, to you know, to learn about the things we learn about, research methods, statistics, a theoretical underpinning, all these things that you get. But always with the focus of 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 um, doing applied work, so it's it's and to go back to my my previous point where it's like yeah you know I was smart and what PhD students need to realize is that you're smart and you can, you have something to offer outside of the walls of academia. The other point to that is there's a change in the last ten years because of area because of predictably rational nudge thinking fast and slow i always say those are the three books so 2008 to 2011 these three books were published all of a sudden the lay public policy government officials for-profit uh, marketing firms consulting firms were like whoa behavioral science this is cool um and that has exploded and that's the why i'm doing the podcast i'm doing it's it's sort of people what people are calling <laughs> this might be a bit a bit over the top, a bit embellishment, but the behavioral revolution. So, and for, for, for 
people like me who are coming out of academia, it's like, yeah, no shit. We've had a hundred years of so of psychology, behavioral science, cognitive psychology, neuroscience. We've had we have this wealth of knowledge, a body of evidence. Some of some of it good, some of it not so good. Um, and it's always been sort of kept up in this ivory tower, and only literally only within the last. 10, five years policy, two, three years in for-profit consulting type firms um, and, and tech firms is that evidence and that body of knowledge now coming down into industry, as we call it. So there's this trend that I would, I think I was fortunate to sort of ride the wave um, and, and other people who are leaving academia are realizing, whoa, I can be a scientist outside of a university. So for somebody who's thinking about following this track, let's say they're in a PhD program right now, but uh, they might not want to stay in academia, they want to maximize their options. What are some things that they should be paying attention to as far as, you know, the kind of skills that are most valuable, uh, give you the most flexibility that people are looking for and so on? Good. Good question. Okay. So um, definitely sort of the soft skills the people the people management um so that's having conversations with clients um client management sort of setting those expectations and in addition to that and this is all related is the business side of things which is having and this is something that i think a lot of graduate students in psychology or at least in our program they're they're like a humble bunch right they're not arrogant even though they have every reason to be they're very intelligent very motivated they you know they're much more intelligent than the mbas at rotman but if you were to look at them side by side you'd like the 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 mba students are you know are the ones who are going around thinking they're 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 the the bee's knees um so i would say work on work on being confident in what you can deliver to a, a a potential client and salesmanship and I don't mean salesmanship in terms of like, ooh, you're a skeezy salesperson and you're trying to, you know, like snake oil. No, like realize you have an offering or a product of value that you can take to an organization and say, look, I'm a scientist. I can bring science, scientific type thinking to your organization, to your team. And let me tell you about it and I'll show you it. And they love it. They eat it up. It's a, this is actually kind of really interesting, I find, because in, in some ways um, what you're describing is... <laughs> Um, nice to crack open another beer. I'm, I'm on my second as well. Um, is, you know, I think as a scientist, we, we are, we need to be humbled with regards to our data, right? So we're just like, I, I think one thing we're learning, uh, uh, you know, from our, our, our current woes, replication woes is like, we just, we know a lot less than we think. Um, so I think if anything, we're trying to like push towards like being more humble, but I understand what you're saying because this, even if we're humble, we still have lots of skills, lots of knowledge, um, that we can, that people want. Um, but yet again, because discipline kind of pushes us to be this certain way. And then you have the business school people where they're, they're trained to be assertive and confident, um, gregarious. Uh, so yeah, you get this kind of mismatch in levels of confidence and maybe even knowledge of, of the area. Yeah, and and there's I've had countless conversations with clients where 
they are like, you know, often a lot of stuff I do is assessments and surveys and evaluations to, to assess the impact of a, like a training program. So one of my big clients is mindfulness training executives at like, you know, Google, Ikea, like big, big, you know, fortune 100 companies. And we assess the impact of pre post before and after of somebody who undergoes a mindfulness training program that's geared towards leadership and organizations. And I talk with some people and on the client side or the client, the customer of the client. And they're like, yeah, just, just, just tell me the numbers. How much did they improve? Like, I don't, you know, and I'm like, well, you know, there's match cases and you need match cases to do statistical analyses and correlations. And they're like, no, 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 no. They have no <laughs> room for that. These people are executives. They're busy. Um, you just, you know, give it to them straight. And so as I was saying, we were talking about off air, um, what I've wrestled with as I've grown the business in the last two, three years since defending is being a scientist um, and maintaining the scientific integrity and, and the rigor, but knowing and recognizing that you have to sacrifice some of it. You, I, I cannot be as good a scientist as I was in a lab, you know, in academia. Um, because you would not get budget, you would not get mandate, you wouldn't get any clients. My business would go out, would go out, I'd go bankrupt very soon. So you have to, you sort of have to find and strike this balance between being data driven and humble, um, while also being confident and, um, I use this term like, like, you know, taking shortcuts, but, but being strategic and being cautious in which shortcuts you take. So what are some of the things that you need to compromise on compared to the way that you would do it uh, if you were in academia? So um, statistical and not like inferential statistics, sometimes you have to throw out um, where the client is mostly just interested in, in percentile changes or numerical differences. So, so, you know, as we know, numerical versus statistical differences mean all the difference are really important. It's a really important distinction uh, for them. Not so much. And, and trying to communicate statistical difference, inferential statistical differences is, 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 a, is a tough go. So I'll give you a good example. Um, I analyzed the data set through, uh, excuse me, I'm very um, beer, burpy. burpy, as they say. I was going to say gassy, but that might be the wrong. <laughs> you can be gassy and burpy end. too. Right. <laughs> um, so it was a, a data set on uh, Harvard Business Review of looking at leaders, various leaders across the globe who fill in the survey. And uh, so about 25,000 uh, respondents, huge data set. Um, and I see, you know, significant correlations across the board in these really interesting demographic variables, gender, organization, organ the size of the organization, the level of the, per the leadership level, uh, country, region, like different continents, regions of the world. But the differences are like 0.05 on a, on a seven point Likert scale. But because it's a huge sample, it's, it's massively statistically significant. And so I try, I'm trying to communicate that like, you know, there's this, there's this distinction between statistical significance and practical significance. And we sort of have to wrap our heads around that. And, and then, you know, some people will say, uh, I don't really get how you're reporting on this number. What's this Likert scale thing? Give me a percentage. And so if I convert that to a percentage, it's going to be like 76% compared to 75%. And people are going to look at that and be like, that's not different. How different is that? So that's that's one uh, one example. Another one more that I'll, that I'll add is, is just the notion of, of randomized controlled trials. 
and experimentation. I like we're trained in research methods and I love I live my life through sort of a hypothesis testing lens and control and placebo controls. And these things are so important for scientists. Um, there's very little room for that type of thinking in industry because it's a risk because it's like you're going in, you say, don't do what you've done before, which is just implement the decision based on what, you know, previous, you know, runs or what your boss, what your bosses say, no, 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 you're going to give me more money and you're going to give me six months because I got to collect the data. Oh, and half of the people are only going to get the treatment that I think is going to work. And the other half of people, because we need this thing that's called a control, are just going to be sort of as is doing their job as normal. So trying to like convince a, you know, a stakeholder, somebody in industry, like an executive of that, they're going, what? Because they don't have that. They don't have the, 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 the understanding of the, the sheer importance of, of randomized controls. Um, and so you have, to, you have to get buy-in and you have to convince uh, executives and leaders that, look, it's an investment and you're going to get what we say your ROI. Now, we're not talking about the brain here, you know, return on investment. <laughs> uh, so it's an investment that any decision you make based on the data we see will be better uh, for your business. And you can sort of incorporate it in your strategic vision moving forward. Interesting. It, it seems a little bit like the preference for positive results in, you know, academic publications in that, like, I, I can imagine how do these programs get proposed at all? There's probably some executive who's advocating for them. And now do you win any credibility by being like, well, we did the proper RCT and it shows that this thing that I wanted to do actually doesn't do anything. Like, is anybody like, great for you. You <laughs> saved us a lot. Of, you know, it's like, ah, oh, your idea sucked. Right. So I imagine kind of what they want is for you to demonstrate with numbers that the thing that they wanted to do is a good idea. Is going to work. Do yeah. it's, and they can go to their other leaders on the board and go, see, I told you my idea was good. We got the smart scientists who, who demonstrated with numbers who quantifiably demonstrated the success of this program. Um, you're right. You're totally right. That's that's a thing. Uh, so I, I talked to Dilip, Dilip Soman, who's who's sort of a behavioral economist at Rotman. He says he goes uh, or consults on these projects and, and he assumes that every intervention, that every nudge that he applies is going to fail. He does. And, and it's, it's and that's sort of that's how it's false falsifiability. That's how every scientist should go in and sort of test their hypotheses is to try and break it, to try and falsify those claims. But you, again, you, you trying to communicate that, that's like a philosophy of science that we, that, that we grasp and we accept and we can come to terms with. But when you have money and when you have ego and you have these things on the line in private sector, I should say I want to draw a line between I want to distinguish between private and for profit where where I do my work and policy policy. There's much more acceptance around these things because I think they were early adopters of behavioral economics through the UK's behavioral insights team partnered with the Harvard's behavioral insights group which then formed all the nudge units around different governments in the world. So policy has been the first, you know, the first movers in applied behavioral economics and behavioral science. So they understand these things. Um, and traditionally in government, things move slow anyways, wherein, whereas in, in uh, private sector and for profit, you got to move fast and you need to just, um, you know, show you know <laughs> show proof of concept and move and and move quickly and you can't convince 
for example, an executive that I'm actually helping you here because I'm, you know, this new initiative that you plan, like for example, mindfulness, we had a, we had a whole episode against mindfulness. Um, and this new initiative that you pl you're planning actually doesn't work. And that that's good news because that initiative would have cost you millions of dollars and now don't bother doing it. But they don't want to hear that because that was their brainchild that they that they put in place for the last three years. So then they have to go to their superior and say, oh man, we just found out through the scientist consultant guy that I was totally wrong and I wasted millions of dollars of our budget. Oh man, this is like way worse than, <laughs> than academia, right? I mean, <laughs> it's about as bad. Oh, I'm, it's way, I, well, it's, it's way worse because we're going in and God, here I am painting such a grim picture. It actually is great, um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm I'm sitting in front of you guys, so I have to I have to be cynical and uh, skeptical. It's skeptical. skeptical. That's sorry, skeptical. That's what I meant. Um, I'm assuming my 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 scientist hat right now. Um, what were we saying before that? I mean, I, I think I think the incentives. What you described is essentially, essentially like a you know, it's one person's ego is their their idea, and for them, it's it has to be yes. The answer has to be yes that it works. Now, what's best for that person is in direct conflict with what is best for the company. Yes, exactly. Um, the company would like to know. Let's okay, yes, sure, we wasted millions of dollars, but it's a sunk cost. Let's keep on moving, and let's not you know you know, pour further money into it because it's a waste. So you, that's valuable for the corporation, but it's not valuable for the, for the person whose idea it was. Um, and if they're the decision maker, they will decide to stop it or to continue it on or to ignore the data if, if, if they want. Now, this is, a, this is a lot of what I'm saying is, is speculation. I shouldn't say this is direct experience. To paint a, a, a more optimistic and hopeful picture um, is now we're seeing the role of the CBO, which is the chief behavioral officer. And I've had a couple of them on my show already where they, they you know, people in, in industry and in the marketplace are arguing that within 10 years, most organizations, Fortune 500, will have uh, a behavioral officer in the C-suite. So sitting along your, your CFO, your finance officer, your executive officer, your human resources officer is going to be somebody who has a behavioral science background and training. And that behavioral science should inform the strategy of a business from the get-go, from the bottom up, not some, something that sort of happens in patchwork after the fact. It's sort of like, no, no, let's design. So think of any, any one of your tech products, your apps out there. It's all, all, they're all based in behavior. So much of them are based in behavior. You're trying to target a, an ideal behavior in a consumer. And so if you have somebody who understands basic psychology and can design interventions from the very beginning of, the, of that product launch, you're, you're going you're gonna to design and, and produce a, an, amazing, an amazing product and service. So point being, there's more of these people like us in organizations who are the decision makers. So you're going to get internal buy-in. So you're going to get the people who understand, who have the appetite for experimentation. So you're going to have that, that sort of person who's, who, who realizes the importance of you know, RCTs and, and um, We call them A-B testing here. A-B, <laughs> That's right. We're in Silicon Valley. Right. Um, so, you know, I want to continue talking about this. Cause I, 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 I feel like this is kind of hitting our wheelhouse in terms of like replication and like good evidence, bad evidence. And it seems like we, we can get something cool here. But I feel we should take a break. It's uh, we've uh, I, we, we need one. We do. We Nature do. Calls. I need another beer.
And uh, Mickey, no you, more tea beers, though. No more tea beers, sadly. Uh, somehow you always managed to break my toilet, but I, I think I fixed it. All right. I heard it running. <laughs> it was. It works perfectly up until the point where you're here. And then this is two times in a row now that you've done something terrible to it. of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we're on Twitter at four beers pod is the show's handle. You can at mention us or DM us and that will go to both of us. If you'd like to email fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Again, we'll go to both of us. Finally, our website is fourbeers.fireside.fm. You can drop us a line there as well. Uh, you can also listen to our back catalog there. If you are enjoying the show, please do rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show and it also amuses us. So we really, we appreciate that. It amuses us. I, I, I That's exactly right. The, the reviews do amuse us. And in fact, the last review amused me a great deal. I'm not sure you saw it. I didn't see it. What was it? Uh, it was just all very nice, but the, 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 the title of the review was something like Professors Unchained. Uh, one of our former students at U of T uh, who said, you know, they're kind of, you know, my, my former professors who are kind of like, unrestrained uh, by the classroom. I kind of thought that was kind of fun. Uh, that's funny. Yeah, I, I've had a couple students now come up after lecture and be like, oh, I like your podcast. It's a, it's a, it's a weird experience, right? Because I'm uh, not, I, I feel like it's a very different persona in front of the class than here. And I wonder how they react to that. Yeah, we are, uh, we're dirtier here. So I, classroom. Yes, exactly. I try to keep the F-bombs to a minimum. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you swear in class? No, because, you know, I'm conscious of the fact that, like, some of our students are religious conservative. And... I got called out. Did you really? And so I was a session, all that at the same you know, University of Toronto Scarborough, and I got, I got not reprimanded, but told to ease up on the, on the swear. By the students or by the, uh, by the, the higher ups? By the higher ups. Oh, the chair slapped yeah. your wrist. Yeah. How did how did they find out? The student complained. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's an interesting exercise in 
not every student is going to share your background at all. And so I feel the need to keep it a little uh, blander. But I, I find it hard because at least I think and I suspect it's the same for you guys. Like my default is to just swear, like to use profanity tastefully. So especially when I'm in that context of lecture and I'm riffing and I'm in the moment, you know, really into some data. Yeah. I find myself having to bite my tongue. Oh, to hold back, yeah. Mickey, do you uh, um, self-control? No, I, I think uh, I can code switch. So, you know, uh, in class, I don't have the urge to uh, to swear. I know that's so out of character for me. I'm so impulsive generally. On the show, I, I can be more myself. So I, I do swear naturally. There's this interesting study. This came up in conversation a, a couple weeks ago. with. So we do know, like, there's like, you know, swearing people are more intelligent, blah, blah, blah. Um, there's an, an organizational psych study where they manipulated uh, this intervention where they had certain leaders use profanity more often and then rate, had ratings from their subordinates and their employees on teams. And they rated the leaders who swore as better leaders across the board, more perceived as, and the sort of mediator was authenticity. Um, so there you have it. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so um, let's drink some beer. Let's, let's drink some beers. Yeah, what, what what have we got? Well, I'm going to do. Uh, I've got another uh, collective arts, which is going to be number two. I love them, so I'm I'm so thankful that you brought these, Nick. This is a jam up the mash. It's a dry hopped sour, which uh, I generally like. So I'm looking forward to uh, to drinking it. And in fact, I'll open it for this pleasant sound. Oh my god, it's all over your laptop. That's that's, uh, that's beer proof, right? Yeah, yeah, it's kind of beer proof. We'll see if this survives. Do you you want a napkin? Yeah, maybe. Okay. So I, while while that's happening, I'm drinking uh, to 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 stick with my theme. This is called Mad and Noisy Lagered Ale, refreshing and delicious. That's good. Um, Inspired by the Kolsch beers of Cologne, Germany. Uh, light-bodied brew with a delicate, fruity aroma of an ale and a crisp, clean finish of a lager. So actually, I like, as I was saying earlier, I sort of like the Bavarian tradition of, uh, of, of German lagers. Lagered ale is sort of a nice in-between for me. Nice. And I'm drinking a Löwenbrauer, which is, uh, is that the cheap beer of your youth? That's it. Nice. Yeah. I'm enjoying it. Yeah. I, I love the way you pronounce that uh, in the proper German way. How how do you, what's the? Lowenbrau? Lowenbrau. There you go. You know, it's a light beer for the summer. This is like, this is the stuff you do like after a workout. <laughs> <laughs> or, or during, you know, dependent. Um, so uh, let's see. We wanted to talk a bit about uh, some local color, huh? Yeah, so local color. So, uh, you know, so uh, Nick just described his beer as fruity and uh, flowery, I believe. Um, this is the opposite of that. And apparently, it, you know, we got, uh, UL, you and I, we got this uh, alert from University of Toronto Security Services, the police services of, of U of T, um, alerting us that there is a poo bandit. Um, so, and this is not, I mean, it is hilarious, but it's true. It's not a joke. Uh, there is a man uh, who is going around the city of Toronto and targeting specifically university libraries. So he targeted uh, the University of Toronto and as well, he's targeted um, York University. And I mean, it's, it's vile what he did, what he did, but he, he had a bucket of shit. 
I mean, literally a bucket of poo. And there's some like CCTV footage of him. So you can see him. He's got like these big gloves, a hard hat. He's, he looks like a kind of, he's masquerading as a construction worker. He's got this bucket and he just dumps this bucket on unsuspecting people. Uh, this bucket of shit. Um, it's fucking revolting, but uh, I mean, I, I you know, I was, I, I'm not gonna lie. I thought about it as I was passing the library today on my bicycle. I'm like, I gotta be vigilant. Yeah, I gotta be aware for this shit, dude. Um, <laughs> is it? Is it? It's a man. Oh, because the CT. Yeah, yeah there's, like, there's actually a, a fairly good picture of him, so I imagine they're gonna I get mean, him. It's a soon. matter of time. It's yeah. all over the news, right? Like, if you know this dude, like clearly you will be able to recognize him from the picture. Really, it's that yeah. clear. Yeah, yeah, yeah very, it's very what's clear. The charge. Do you think he'll? <laughs> it's assault, I think. Assault, that would be assault. Right? That would yeah. be assault. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, assault with a deadly weapon? Well, it depends. Yeah. It depends. Could be deadly. Yeah. Potentially deadly. Yeah. So the email reads, we are aware of the three incidents of feces throwing over the past few days at U of T and York University. What has happened is shocking. And we are providing assistance to those affected. So that's nice. Oh, nice. Counseling services? Yeah. I, hope I know I'd need that. Yeah. God. What an experience. I mean, we're joking, but that would be just... Yeah, we're very insensitive. Yeah. We are. We are. We should be more mindful of the plight of those affected, especially because this is sort of like tempting fate. I'm just asking to have poop thrown on me since I've been making light of so this. The, the, you don't the, believe in karma. Come on. So the one, you know, there is a very clear picture of the perpetrator. And this is one photo where he's just like, he's smiling from ear to ear. I mean, he is clearly having so much fun doing this uh anyhow uh terrible person uh god bless you damn straight uh okay so before the break um we were talking about i guess you'd say the like use and misuse of behavioral science in um well we like to say industry right um so one thing that struck me as you were talking about this is just the irony of over the last 10 years, this has gotten so huge in business. And at that same time, we've really started like questioning our results and our methods and the empirical foundation for a lot of the claims that we're making. I'm curious whether any of that has gotten out. Do you, do you get asked about that at all? Is it on people's radar whatsoever? Uh, well, so first thing I'll say, it's, it's tough to segue from liquid shit to the use and misuse <laughs> <laughs> but anyways i'll try we'll just... show. <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> so uh but to, 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 the short answer is no it never comes up and it's always it's always i'm the one who's bringing it up and, and i think i don't know and i think you guys would would have a sense of this we were especially tuned to what was going on you know and i was actually it was sort of right in the middle of my training from 2012 to 2017 ish 2016 2017 i was right right in the middle of it so, you know, obviously, Mickey, with with your involvement and and um, it sort of extended out into the lab for for your students and for me. So I was on top of it. Um, and so when I left academia, I was still it was and it still continues to be on top on top of my mind. So when I when I go to I you can't first of all, you can never go to clients with that. Because what we're trying to do with clients is actually sell them on the merits of behavioral science. And if we go in and say, but, you know, they're only 33% of our, you know, sort of findings replicate, they're going to be like, well, I thought you're here. I thought we we're paying you to bring us something good. <clears throat> so, so no, that, that type of conversation doesn't happen. Um, where it does sometimes surface, but I'm really the one who's pushing it is in the community of behavioral practitioners on like, say, LinkedIn and Twitter. 
but they're not they're nowhere near uh, knowledgeable of of the replication crisis. They've you know they've heard about it. They maybe read a Vice article or or whatever it is, but um, they don't they don't know. So no, it's not a conversation that's being had. But I will say a lot of the to get that initial buy in an industry and in and in business and policy, most of the interventions that are being done and most of the trials that are being designed are the really the low hanging fruit. And that low hanging fruit is replicable stuff like social norms, like that stuff works. We know it works. Defaults. We know it works. Loss aversion like these things, no, even that. But but for the most part, I'd say 95 percent of the experiments and the interventions being done in practice are based off of replicable research. And I mean, so this is, I think, a, a related question. Um, so what, what you've just described is coming to clients with knowledge that we've accumulated as a field, right? So norms, uh, you know, sunk cost, loss aversion, et cetera. But it seems like a behavioral scientist is doing something else as well, and that is actually running experiments to test questions. And there, it's no longer about like how solid or not solid a field is, but there it's about like, let's, we have a question and instead of just going with a gut answer, we actually try to test and determine what the best course of action is. So it seems to me there, um, it's better to have a behavioral scientist in the room than not to have a behavioral scientist in the room. Oh, I think there's always, it's, it's always better to have a behavioral scientist in the room. And I think where they play the biggest part is you just said it. So I'll just sort of echo what you said is, they can come in with an understanding of past evidence and past findings and recommend the direction you should you should go given what we know about this you know x and y x y z theory um, but then the second part, which is sort of the full-fledged diversion, is, well, you know, that's actually just a hypothesis, and this is sort of contextualized to your customers and to this specific situation. So the only way we really know is if we test that out. And that's where you have this empirically driven approach of a randomized control trial and experimental testing with a control condition um, and data collection and data analysis and these things. So those are the two sort of categories that I see. Um, and if you look at any firm that is claiming to take a behavioral science or behavioral economics approach, uh, I would say, I'd say 60 to 70% are just doing the first part, which is we know about nudging. We know about all this theory. We know about human decision-making. We know about biases. Um, but they stop at the experiment, experimentation and randomized control trials. And then the remaining 30, 40% are doing the full gamut. Uh, in particular, I'd say the best leading that is one that comes to mind is in Toronto is um, BE Works, which was co-founded by Dan Ariely and Kelly Peters. So they will, from my understanding, and um, full disclosure, I, I'm an advisor there, but from my understanding, every client engagement they have is uh, a full experimental test. So they start with what they call like behavioral diagnostics, and then from there, they will do a full-fledged RCT. And if a client comes and they're like sort of uh, courting the client and the client's like, no, 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 we don't want that. Like, and they'll say, OK, well, then see you later. Here's the door because we only do science in this in this applied context. And, and I and I commend them for that. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, well, this is a question for you, UL, actually, since you're uh, you're in this world kind of as well. You're you're uh, you study judgment decision making, which I think a lot of the behavioral economics spins off that. Um so what we're hearing from you, Nick, is in some ways like kind of a, uh, 
to some extent a dark side of this, and that is like uh, when there are people involved who don't take no for an answer. And by that I mean they don't care what the experiment says; they just want they want the affirmative answer of the experiment. That's it. Um, but of course, that's not what the data tell you uh, all the time. So my question to you, you all, what do you think, uh, theoretically, um, is that, I mean, that's a perverse incentive. That's uh, something that, that's not, uh, I think, good science, uh, per se. Um, but is it better to have the behavioral scientists there? Right? Is it better to have someone who's, you know, at least you know, expressing the uncertainty or testing the idea and then saying, by the way, I don't think, you know, this is supporting your hypothesis or your pet little project, then not, even if there, there is the perverse incentive there. I just don't know that in the abstract that you can answer that question. Surely sometimes it's better to have somebody in the room who has the right values, even if they can't convince the people in charge to do everything the best possible way. But also sometimes I can imagine that this becomes a way for people to just dress up what they wanted to do anyway in fake data. I mean, not fabricated, but in, in data that like really don't support their argument, but that are superficially impressive. And so you could imagine somebody gets a worse policy implemented because they have some data that make this look more convincing than in fact it should be. I don't know how that balance pans out. And I don't know as a general principle that you can say that it's generally going to go one way or the other, but I feel it's not without downsides Total, but but then isn't isn't i agree with you i totally agree with you but is that not better is that not an improvement from what it is now or what it was what it has been in the past which is a decision based on pure subjective feeling or anecdote or authority i think so at least it's like sort of let's see it as a, as a continuum of of confidence in in decisions and and knowledge whereas the the, the extreme the best extreme end is is being totally evidence-driven and, and data-driven through experimental hypothesis testing. The worst end is just like, wow, like I, I think this is right because I'm the boss. And you can sort of have some gradient there uh, where in the middle is is a behavioral scientist on team who says, yeah, this sort of is like this and uh, we can construe the data and the statistics this way and that's kind of what you want to hear and so on, that's what I'm going to give you. Right. I, I think it really depends on the situation because I think sometimes having a, a metric or something numeric gives an illusion of support or precision that then makes people confident to do things that they wouldn't do otherwise. So I, this is just on my mind because I happened to read a the abstract of a paper that dealt with this, the idea of like ranking teachers by how much value they add, how much better do their pupils do compared to like the average instructor. And you can, I, I believe that like you can quantify that, but let's say that you quantify it poorly such that these metrics are essentially worthless and then you're ranking people and maybe deciding to fire some on the basis of this bad metric. So that's a way that's not precisely what you're talking about, but it's a way in which quantification can make you too confident. Quanti quantification leads to the reification of concepts that shouldn't be, or at least like can't be figured out that they're, they're intangible. And, and as soon as you attach a number to it, they're like, somebody now has the justification to point to it and say, aha, see, 
this per- this teacher is worse than that one. Therefore, you have to make a decision to fire him or her or whatever. I agree with that. I, I think mean, that's th- a great th- point. This reminds me a lot of of our of our last episode where we we were kind of. Uh, uh, describing how experiments can sometimes mislead by and by mislead uh uh it's kind of again you know it's it, it adds you know theater dramatization um this allure of science for something that maybe wasn't so scientific to begin with and it seems to me like that would be a challenge uh especially when you know your lunch is on the line right like you know you're 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 the money you make, the the salary you earn to feed your family is on the line. Um, and you want to be the best scientist you can, but you also have this competing interest. Um, it just seems like, you know, I mean, it's cognitive interest just like it is, you know, in, in science, you know, in basic science as well. We've got this, you know, if I want to get a raise, if I want to keep my job, I've got to keep publishing at a certain rate. So again, there's, a, you know, these conflicts of interest, these uh, misaligned incentives. So... Yeah, it's hard. I mean, it's hard hard to know how to navigate that exactly. And I think we're in this for the applied context in the work that I do and my, you know, fellow practitioners do. We're in this like awkward teenage growing, you know, phase where we don't know really how to make sense of what we're doing, or where we're like you know we're drawing insights and we're leveraging from basic research. Um, which is replicable sometimes and not in other contexts. And so we don't, and we're trying to create and brand ourselves as this thing. So we don't, we don't really know what it is. We don't know what to call ourselves. Hence the name of my podcast. Some people say behavioral insights, behavioral design, behavioral science, behavioral economics. Why behavioral economics? A lot of the stuff we're doing now is nothing to do with money or economics. And we still use that term. It's widely used. I think it's just because of the books that were initially published but it sells more than uh, psychology. That that well, that, and that, so this is actually a curious point, and I've brought this up, and I'm glad I'm glad you you said that, is because now it's why behavioral whatsoever, why 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 not psychology, and it's because the economists were the first, you know, the the ones who were on the scene first, and they sort of slapped that on there to, because, in you know, behavior is this thing that's tangible and observable and quantifiable. As we've known the history of like sort of our 20th century history of psychology, the behaviorist tradition poo-pooed anything that was internal or, you know, an emotion or anything that was um, drawn from introspection. All they cared about was observing uh, uh, behavior. And and we're now in this weird way coming back to that where it's like even the, the words we're using, it's like, no, 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 we're not we're not applied psychologists. We're applied behavioral scientists. And that's and that's um, that's strategic, and I think they're doing that for a good reason because it makes the sell easier because we're we're observing the real things, not not the mushy, you know, abstract things in the head. We're looking at behavior, which we're not. Sometimes we are, but most times it's psychological. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's so interesting that you brought that up because I I was just thinking the same thing that this term behavioral economics is a sort of a strange misnomer, uh, like a mislabeling of stuff that's actually, for the most part, judgment decision-making research, stuff like defaults, for example, loss aversion, that all comes out of JDM, which is really cognitive psych applied to, I mean, Kahneman and Tversky obviously used economic rationality as their foil, and some of those initial papers 
were in econ journals, like famously one was in Econometrica, right? So they were they were speaking to economists because they were trying to convince them that their models needed revision. But that stuff doesn't come out of econ. It's not primarily done in econ. Like the stuff that's behavioral economics, like that I would consider to be behavioral economics is like oh, I don't know, models of delay discounting or something. That It's not really directly applicable to the stuff that I would imagine practitioners are doing. Yeah, and I think Richard Thaler says, um, he, uh, if, I might be getting this totally wrong, but I heard <laughs> that he like hates the term behavioral economics and he thinks he's done his job well enough when the field has abandoned that, that term altogether to use something else. But what, why, like, I, I'll put this to you guys, like, I'm a trained social psychologist, but now I brand, and I'm being totally transparent here, I, hopefully none of my, my clients are listening. Um, we have a very narrow, nobody listens to the show. Just, yeah, it's you're mostly fine. people who are interested in people who throw shit on each other. <laughs> that is our core demo. <laughs> that fucker's probably listening. He's right? going to leave us a review. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for the shout out, guys. <laughs> So, so I'm a trained social psychologist and with, with, with a little bit of, uh, like, you know, uh, cognitive neuroscience thrown in and anthropology. Uh, but, but, but I feel way more comfortable branding myself in my business now as behavioral science. I never, ever mention psychology, even though that's, that's what I do. That's what I'm trained. And that's, that's sort of how I see myself. So how do you guys think of that? I mean, I think psychology ha it means so many things to so many people. I think the probably the modal uh, association with psychology is Freud and, you know, being on someone's couch and talking about your mother. Um, that's what I think that, you know, the startup many of us fight against. Uh, and I, I think there's enough sophisticated consumers of psychology now that that's not the only association, but that's still the dominant one. Um, in fact, I, I think in some jurisdiction, the the label to call yourself a psychologist means you're a clinical Cl psychologist. Clinician, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Sitting in front of you guys, and what I'm curious about is, do you think that there's certain hypotheses can be tested or falsified um, even? in an applied setting that can't be done in the same way within a lab. We know there's certain constraints in a laboratory setting, right? Um, now, all of a sudden, the, the behavioral practitioners have access to people in the, quote unquote, in the wild. Maybe there are certain hypotheses that can be tested that, um, that otherwise wouldn't, wouldn't be able to, and we wouldn't be able to in, in, a, in a lab. I mean, if anything, I think the the work that we'll be doing you know you know very soon more and more of i hope we'll be abandoning the strict you know sterile lab and doing more applied work i i think it's fucked up that like applied work in psychology is almost like a, a pejorative mm -hmm. um like oh you're lesser than that you do that like enough theory we've theorized enough like let's actually you know solve some actual problems and and that's one thing i love about uh, about economics they're 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 about problem solving they're like give me a problem let's figure out how our means our methods our knowledge can solve that problem and that's you know given lots of credit um so 
I'm seeing more and more people looking at applied data, found data, traces of data. Um, and, I, and, and I'm hoping that the, you know, this obsession with uh, operationalism, like, you know, kind of, you, know, uh, you know, proxy measures of something you really care about will be replaced by actually measuring the thing you care about. Um, you might not have the same kind of experimental precision uh, as you have in the lab, but you won't have the artificiality. You won't have the, um, the problems with knowing if your measures are actually assessing the thing you care about because you're assessing the thing you care about directly or more or less directly. But it, it, and that comes back to like the, what I see is the perennial debate between within the social sciences between psychology and I don't know anthropology, where the psychologists would 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 laugh at the anthropologists and say you have no experimental controls, you have no idea what's actually the causal sequence of events of the phenomena you're examining, and they would laugh at us psychologists and say you're in a lab, that's not real life. Yeah, sure. You have you have experimental control, and yet we both we both claim to be experts of human behavior and understanding fundamental human nature. Um, and so maybe as psychologists come out come out of the lab into the real world, it's a bit of a, a bit of a compromise. Um, and I think with the advances of data science and different technologies, we can actually run maybe not true experiments, but quasi-experimental tests of some of these hypotheses and, and get like, these data sets that I get from clients are insane. I, I, I would spend 10 years as a PhD getting the number, the data, and they get it in like a month, no problem. So you can get, you can get adequately powered samples um, and you can test some of those hypotheses. But, but back to the previous point that we've talked about, you have to be willing to sacrifice some of that, some of that, um, that rigor. So maybe that's a like almost a note of optimism to end on. <laughs> Is it optimism? It's jeez. Uh, oh, I think I think I've lost some clients definitely at the end of this conversation. What passes for optimism around here? Mickey, have we covered everything that you wanted to cover? Is there anything else you want to get in? Uh no, I think we're good. Uh, maybe we can uh, allow Nick to plug some of his stuff a bit. Yes. Is there anything that you would like to inform our vast listenership about? Sure. Thanks, guys. Um, so just they can find listeners can find me if they if they're interested in any of this stuff at uh, the behavior or behaviorist.biz, B-I-Z, and that's the American spelling. I dropped the U. So behaviorist.biz. And then the podcast. B-I-Z for the Americans. Yeah, Z is a Z, people. There you go. <laughs> and then the podcast is It's All Just a Bunch of BS, which can also be found on my uh, on my webpage and any of the uh, iTunes listening platforms. Yeah, it seems like you've had some really interesting guests on there. I saw Mike Norton, for example. Episode one. Yeah, we talked about uh, circumcision. Oh, great. Yeah, one of his areas of expertise. Uh, <laughs> Uh, who else have you had on? Uh, so Jen Lerner today, Josh Wright, Michael Sanders, Dilip Soman, Kristen Berman, uh, Neri Al last week. Um, and that's, yeah. I want to know about circumcision. I mean, as, as I've, I've experienced it. Uh, Ship is sailed for you, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's a ritual manipulation. Oh, it's a manipulation. Dude, this is, this is not a manipulation. This is real life. This is enforced upon me, man. <laughs> <laughs> so if I, you know, TMI here. You were aggressed against. Yeah, no, yeah, me too, man. Hey, and I'm not Jewish, but. Yeah. Same thing, all right. Yeah, that's right. 
three well, Jews, not a foreskin among us. That's the real tragedy here. <laughs>